Hey, good morning. Or good evening, guys. We are uh, here again for another lesson uh, from John Clayton um, on uh, his series, Does God Exist? Today, he is talking about the fossil record and the importance of fossils. And uh, he will convince you, I do believe, uh, that really a lot of what we uh, rely on in Scripture um, is is from the Bible. Uh, we certainly, as he has demonstrated, uh, the compatibility and the support, the mutual support between science and, and uh, religion or theology, as he calls it. And he will revisit that just briefly before he ends this tape or this recording. But uh, he says the fossil evidence is one of the few hardcore pieces of evidence that we have about a time long before um, man was recording things. So uh, as we enter into this, uh, open up your mind, uh, see if we can learn a little bit uh, about fossils, and then we'll come back and talk after. Welcome to the Does God Exist video presentation, program number 26, The Fossil Record. I'd like to encourage you to, if you haven't watched the previous program, number 25, in which we introduced what the word evolution means, talked about the difference between the fact of evolution and the theory of evolution, talked about the different theories like punctuated neo-Darwinism, all these fundamental definitions, the word kind means, it really is rather important for you to do that before you look at this presentation. Because the fossil record is the important part of how we deal with what is true and what is not true about evolution. We pointed out at the end of the last program that there are many biological evidences of evolution. And evolution is an unfolding type of change. And we talked about some of the reasons for that. There's no way you could eat a hamburger if it was chemically different than you are. There are many things that we have learned about how to take care of our bodies, the whole medical foundation based upon the similarities that exist in living things. Our understandings of the genetic source of diseases and the fact that we get a huge number of diseases from animals is all a part of understanding the biological connections between humans and animals, and how that connection may have been related in the past. But the real fundamental issue is answered by the fossil record, by the historical record. And we ended the last presentation by quoting from Grassi's ancient textbook on biology, the statement about fossils. The process of evolution is revealed only through fossil forms. This makes me rather happy because I don't know as much about biology as I do about fossils. My training is in physics and geology, it's not in biology. So that's one of the reasons why I have spent very little time talking about the biological evidence and why I'm not going to get in in great depth into the genetic, genetic materials. There are people like Francis Collins who have done that. There are people who have taken much more conservative positions than he has who have done that. And you read those sources for yourself and evaluate what they have to say. But the fossil record is an important record. It has a lot to say to us, no matter what we believe and no matter what our position is on the discussions that we are having. What can we say about fossils? Well, first of all, they exist. These are fossils that I have found where I live, and I live in Michigan. And as you look at those fossils, it should be fairly obvious to you that those fossils are not the kinds of animals living in Michigan today, not even in Lake Michigan for the most part. The fossils have a message to tell us that there has been change. As a geologist, 
looking for oil, looking for coal, looking for natural resources that have commercial value, the fossil record is a major tool in understanding where to look. The fact that we found these kinds of fossils in Michigan led people to look around Michigan for oil, and they found it. Look around Michigan for coal, and they found it. We now know that Michigan is a basin, and that, in fact, there are a number of natural resources like gypsum in Michigan, which are produced by environments that are certainly nothing like what is present today. This is important. This is useful. The fossil record tells us about the past. As a matter of fact, Michigan State Rock is the Petoskey Stone. You're looking at one here. You may have heard of Petoskey Stones. If you tumble them, they make beautiful jewelry. But what's interesting about the Petoskey Stone is that this stone, this coral, is a tropical coral. It will not grow in water that is any colder than 68 degrees. Do I have to tell you that Michigan is not a tropical paradise? There has been change. And the fossil record tells us about that change. And the fossil record tells us that animals have lived in the past that are not alive today. Look at these shark jaws. Now that's an incredible large shark. And those jaws were not found in the ocean. They were found in Illinois, near the intersection of the Mississippi and the Ohio River. They make jaws look like a minnow. Look at the size of this tooth from this carcadon, this large prehistoric shark, compared to a giant white shark of today. There has been change. And animals have lived in the past that are radically different than animals living today. Animals we call dinosaurs. Now, I do want to emphasize here that this is a commercial picture. We don't know what color of skin dinosaurs had. There are some recent finds that suggest certain colors that may have been present, but that certainly is not decipherable. So there is much guesswork in this, but these animals existed. You know, sometimes we run into people who don't think they did. When I was a kid, I was driving a guy to the West Coast one time, and uh, we were driving through the central part of the United States. We came to Vernal, Utah, went by a place called Dinosaur National Park. And the guy's right in the back seat, and I said to him, hey, let's go see the dinosaurs. And his response was, I don't believe in dinosaurs. I don't want to see any either. <laughs> you can take that kind of position, but you can't take it intelligently. These animals lived. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me tell you a little family story. I have two little girls that grew up in my house, and I was the kind of father who just loved to play jokes on my girls. One summer day, I went out on our patio, and there was this toad that had crawled up on our patio and died, and the sun had baked him out, and here he is, and you're looking at him here in this picture, all dried out, shriveled up. So I thought, well, I'll play a joke on my daughter. So I took the toad, and I put him under the bacon on the breakfast table. Now, now before you health nuts go crazy here, I had a piece of saran wrap over him, so don't. Don't get uh, concerned about contamination. Well, my older girl came down, and she's, uh, Kathy's a, a person who deals with the arts, and she's uh, into architecture and things like that, not much into biological things. She picked up a piece of bacon, saw the toad, and made the desired and anticipated response. Yuck! Got it! And she goes running out of the kitchen. Well, that brings her sister down. Her sister's now a biology teacher very much into living things. She looks at the toad on, under the bacon, and she looks at her sister, who's refusing to come in the kitchen until the toad is removed. She looked at me, she rolled her eyes, she picked up the toad, she took him out into my office, and she stapled him to my bulletin board. And that toad is still stuck on my bulletin board. And that little girl is now over 40 years old. And the toad looks like he did the day she put him up there. Now, the process here is dehydration. Fluids were taken out of the animal's body very quickly. 
and the animal is dehydrated. We have found fossils of ancient humans that have been dehydrated, some of them artificially, such as the Egyptian mummies, some of them naturally, especially in South America and the mountains. So we know what people look like. We have a pretty good idea about how they died. We have great evidence on a whole bunch of different fronts about the history of human change from dehydrated, mummified specimens. But ladies and gentlemen, that is also true of dinosaurs. You're looking at a section of skin from a hadrosaur. That's the animal I showed you a moment ago. As you look at that skin structure, you can see that it's very obvious what the cell structure is. As a matter of fact, as scientists have dug into that, they can actually examine the cells and learn much about what is in the cells, chemically and otherwise. And as I said to you earlier, there's a lot of guesswork in this picture, but there's not much guesswork about how the bones are hooked together, where the skin was, how the skin was functioned, what the animal ate. Sometimes we find baby dinosaurs, like this one, where the cell structure is much smaller. I, I want to clarify one point here. A lot of people get the idea that dinosaurs were all great, big, huge, monstrous animals, you know, 25 feet tall and all this sort of thing. But you have to understand that most dinosaurs were very small. Lots of dinosaurs have been found that were the size of a cocker spaniel. The finding of the huge ones, which is the ones that make the newspapers, Saturday morning cartoons and what have you, is relatively rare. And the largest animal that has ever lived on Earth is still alive today. The blue whale, which is a very large animal, is the largest animal that we know has, of, that has ever lived. And even a humpback that you see here compared to an elephant is a massive animal. So we want to emphasize that not all the dinosaurs were great big, huge things. But we also have remains that tell us a lot more about the animal. You're looking here at a piece of material called a coprolite. I don't know any polite way to put this. Uh, this is dinosaur poop. It's hard. You say, well, how can poop be hard? Well, it's been permineralized. And it's hard. It doesn't have any smell. It doesn't have any taste. And you say, yeah, you taste a dinosaur poop? Well, it's been changed. It's been altered. So I'm not going to get dinosaur fever or something of that type. What's interesting is that uh, there's different kinds of dinosaur poop. That's a different type. Two different animals. When you slice this thing, and you can see in this picture the cross section, and you look at it under a microscope, you can tell what this animal had been eating. What we find when we look at this is plant material. We find stems, we find cotyledons, we find all kinds of plant remains in this coprolite. Now, if you were walking around in a national park, and if you knew anything about animals, you would recognize the poop from different animals which would tell you whether the animal has been there. Most of us probably recognize rabbits and deer, but every animal has a characteristic shape to the material and, of course, a different content. And the Smithsonian has rooms of samples of this kind, which can be analyzed. This is an interesting specimen. When you look at this, what you find is that there's 26 different teeth in this dinosaur poop, a whole teeth. There's bone fragments, there's skin pieces. There's no plant material at all. So what did this animal eat? Well, obviously other animals. And if there's 26 different kinds of teeth, most of which can be identified as to what animal the tooth belonged to, then you can pretty well tell what the animal ate. But this has implications fossil-wise. It tells us that animals ate other animals during the time of the dinosaurs. It gives us a picture of what was eaten and how it was eaten. Sometimes the structures are incredibly clear. This is a picture that I'm sure you've seen of an ankylosaurus. Let's look at the tail section. By the way, the, the piece of paper on the left-hand side is an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, which gives you some idea of the size of this. But look at the detail and possibly even some indication of the color that the animal might have had. 
Now, not only do we have the actual skin and bones, in this picture you're looking at the eggs of a dinosaur found in place in situ. Now, when you look at this, it tells you something. First of all, it tells you that the mother had two ovaries because the eggs are laid in pairs. You can notice that the nest, if you want to call it that, is a scooped out area. Surrounding this little bathtub-shaped object, there were massive footprints of a large dinosaur. So it appears that it was a nest that was patrolled by the mother. If you look carefully, you can see that there's vegetation packed around the eggs. You're sort of reminded here of an alligator that will make a nest, put the eggs in it, cover it up with vegetation to stabilize the temperature, and then stay around to keep the predators away. What's interesting is that when you cut one of these eggs open, there's a baby inside. And you can see here that uh, quite a bit of detail is present as you look at this dissected egg. So we know something about the embryonic development. We know something about how the babies developed. We have some picture. Some of them are pretty large. Look at the one that the guy has his left hand on. So that tells us something about the history of these animals. In one case, the eggs were found with a mother still sitting on the nest. What you're looking at is her right leg and the eggs underneath her. Let's back up here for just a minute. If you look carefully, you can see her head turned across the top of her body. The eggs are off to the right and underneath. This is embedded in a windblown sandstone. So what we believed happened was that the mother had this nest. A large sandstorm came up. She went over and covered the nest to protect the eggs from the blowing sand. But the sandstorm was more extensive than she thought and she smothered. And so we have this wonderfully preserved specimen which tells us an enormous amount of detail about how this process of reproduction was carried on and how the animal took care of its eggs. One thing that may impress you as we look at some of these cross-sectioned eggs is how much some of these things look like birds. One of the big questions is, were the dinosaurs birds? Or at least were some of the dinosaurs birds? Because there are what appear to be feather imprints in many cases. And you compare the skull of a modern bird with one of these fossilized forms, you can certainly see the similarities. Sometimes there are vestiges of feathers, but you have to understand that feathers can be used for lots of things. They can be used to snag insects. They don't just have to be used for flight. They can be used for certain types of swimming or running, as is the case with a penguin or an ostrich. But the morphological comparisons with the human arm are very obvious. And so when you see reconstructions, you have to realize that much of what is done in these reconstructions is based upon the fossil evidence. Even soft tissue is sometimes preserved, like this stomach, which gives us some indication. And sometimes food is found in the stomach. And of course, sometimes we find animals still preserved completely intact. This is called amber. Amber is tree sap like a pine tree, where the sap has oozed out, an animal or a bug gets trapped in the sap, and then because the volatiles evaporate, what you have left is a very hard material, which is called amber. As you can see, lots of different insects preserved in amber. So um, could you have a mosquito trapped in amber? <laughs> well, of course. Could that mosquito have taken blood out of a dinosaur? Well, certainly that's possible. Mosquitoes today can take blood out of a hippopotamus or a crocodile or just about anything. Nothing else. They'll go for soft tissue around the eyes or nose. So could you take the blood out of a mosquito and clone a dinosaur? And if some of you don't know what I'm doing here, this is the scenario of the movie called Jurassic Park, which showed in very imaginative form some theoretical concepts about how dinosaurs might have functioned. And by the way, what they proposed in the film could not happen because amino acids tend to rotate in their handedness. 
and we may or may not talk about that down through our discussions here, but there is a polarity, a left hand and a right hand, to living and non-living materials, and it tends to change when the animal dies, which means that the kind of thing they proposed to do in Jurassic Park could not actually be done as they did it. But we have found soft tissue in some dinosaur remains, including red blood cells in some, so who knows? But notice in this amber, we have a frog and we have a turtle. By the way, if you're curious, uh, most of these amber collections have been taken from a place in the Ukraine, and the pictures were sent to me by a student there, and uh, they are remarkable, and they do tell us enormous amounts about the past. But there's still another kind of fossil. And this is an, an interesting scenario because there has been some false claims here. You're looking here at a set of dinosaur tracks. This is from a place called Glenrose, Texas, although I have been to several places where such tracks exist. The dinosaur tracks are in a limey mud. And you may, as you look at these pictures, you may wonder about the nature of the rock, but it's a, a very muddy, soft material, but when it gets lime in it, it becomes very, very hard. And in a place called Glenrose, Texas, which is near Waco, there is a park called Dinosaur State Park, and Glenrose has had a number of movies made about it. I have been there many, many times. One time when I was there, it was raining. You may think this looks like mud, but again, it's very, very hard rock. If you hit it with a hammer, your rock hammer would just bounce off of it. The rain makes it look soft, but it's not. But what I want you to notice here is that there is clear activity on the part of a dinosaur. The animal was moving that direction. The animal decided to go that direction. And the arrows simply tell you the direction of the tracks. So what the animal did was to plant its right foot and press its tail into the mud. You'll notice that to the left of the arrow, there is a tail imprint. And if you come up and look at that closely, you'll see scale imprints in it. And then the animal walked off step, 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 step. That tells you a lot, gives you information about the animal. You may have heard stories about human tracks and dinosaur tracks being found in the same rock layers in Glen Rose. That is simply not true. I have been there many times. The human tracks are contrived. They are not actual tracks. And if you have a question about that, I can offer you documentation on that. But my point here is that the fossils tell us something. This is a, an exercise that we used to use in our science program. It actually is from a place called Dinosaur State Park in Hartford, Connecticut. There's a, a, a bubble that covers this area. The two reference lines there are about 100 feet apart. So the larger animal is traveling 100 feet in maybe four steps and stepping right along. And what I always used to enjoy doing was asking my students to give me any reasonable explanation of what happened based on the evidence. Okay, have you made up your mind? Let me tell you my favorite one. I had a little guy. I taught at an inner city school. I had kids that had never been out of the neighborhood. And I had one little guy that came up and he said, I know what happened. I said, what happened? He said, well, Mama Dinosaur backed up and laid an egg. That's from top to bottom. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And, and she sat on the egg and made sure that when the egg hatched, the baby was okay. So that's what all those tracks are between the two lines. I said, really? He said, yeah. And and they were very polite dinosaurs, like Chinese dragons. They backed away from each other very politely, nodding as they went. And I tried very hard not to laugh. But then I said to him, well, okay, I'll give you credit for that if you can offer me any evidence to support it. And he said, well, I can prove it. I said, really? Well, prove it to me. He said, well, look, the footprints in the lower right don't sink in as deep as the footprints at the top. So clearly, she got rid of something. I was speechless. He had the right observation, didn't he? Then I thought I had him. I said, yeah, but, but look at this. The footprints are further apart for the bigger dinosaur between the two lines. How do you explain that? He said, well, you know how it is with parents. They can't wait to get away from the kids. <laughs> well, you take whatever explanation you want. The point is, it's a fossil. It has something to tell us about dinosaurs. They were clearly bipedal in this case. 
I would suggest it indicates carnivorous activity, but you might have a different idea. I've had kids say, no, they were like, they were like kangaroos. They, she put her baby in her pouch. And, but this is an important point. We don't know what the soft tissue was like, so you can't disprove that. Based on the evidence, there's more than one possible explanation. But there is one very, very important point here that needs to be made about what the fossils have to tell us. Evolution is based on a religion, on a faith at least, which is called uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is the religious belief that no process has ever happened in the past which is not operational today. In the earth science book, the snappy way they say it is, the present is the key to the past. So when we look at a rock deposit, we assume the rock deposit was produced by the same process we see those rock deposits being laid by today, uniformitarianism. When we look at the way an animal lived, the way they ate, the way they functioned, we assume that nothing mystic was involved in the process. This is the basis of all historical science. The Bible says this isn't necessarily true. The Bible says periodically throughout history there have been catastrophic events not operational today which have punctuated the Earth's history. And the classic example of this would probably be the flood. Now we have floods today, but not a flood of the magnitude described in the biblical record. If, and we'll take a strictly fundamentalist interpretation here, if the whole earth was covered with water, water of such magnificent amounts that it completely covered Mount Everest or whatever mountains were there at the time, and that existed for a long period of time, that would have a radical effect upon life. If the only life that could survive was marine life and those forms that man chose fit to save, that would be a major change in the history of the earth. That would not be uniformitarian in nature. Now that's a biblical example and an atheist won't accept it. So let's look at something that's a little bit more scientific in nature in terms of evidence. You're looking here at something called the periodic chart. I'm sure you've studied this in chemistry class. And you know that elements like carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and so forth up near the top of the chart are fundamental in the building blocks of life. Luis Alvarez, at the end of the 20th century, discovered something rather interesting. In the last remains of the dinosaurs, there were unusually large amounts of the elements osmium, rhenium, and iridium. Now, I've circled those on this diagram. This is at the bottom of the chart. Let's go back to the whole chart. It's down low, down near platinum and gold. It's not up near iron and, and copper and, and carbon and nitrogen and all those things. Now, some of you are saying, well, I never heard of osmium, rhenium, and iridium. That's right, because they're only found in trace amounts in the Earth's crust today. But in the remains of the last dinosaurs, they're in concentrations 500 times greater than that. So Alvarez had a proposal, which I think has been pretty well been verified in today's world, because we now know that asteroids, large hunks of rock from space, have struck the Earth and left the elements that they are composed of on the Earth, and one of those combinations that is present in the same concentrations found in the Cretaceous deposits of the dinosaurs are the elements osmium, iridium, and rhenium. So the scenario is that at the end of the Cretaceous period, when the dinosaurs became extinct, a large asteroid hit the Earth. As this thing hit the Earth, and by the way, these pictures are from various scientific publications, various websites, and so forth. As these things hit the Earth, they would have vaporized themselves and part of the Earth's crust. But this would have produced monumental effect if it hit in a water environment. Then you would have a nuclear winter effect massive amounts of material thrown up into the atmosphere, a tidal wave generated by the collision. What's interesting is that in the Yucatan Peninsula, there is a place that looks very much like this. This is a radar imprint 
of an area on the Yucatan shoreline. That black line running through the center there is the shoreline. What is indicated by white dots here are forms of material called cenotes, which are quartz minerals produced by very high temperatures and very high pressures. That doesn't happen in a volcano because, well, you can have very high temperatures, you don't have high pressures once the material is extruded. So what is believed is that this is a place where an asteroid hit. If it was on this coastline, there would have been a tidal wave generated in the area around the Gulf, and there is a tsunami line on the opposing shoreline. It's important to understand that, that this evidence suggests that, in fact, this was a catastrophic event. And since this study, there have been other studies, for instance, in Sudbury, Ontario, pretty good documentation has been given for similar things. This would have thrown massive amounts of material into the Earth's atmosphere, and you would have had a nuclear winter. What's interesting is that it's not just the dinosaurs became extinct. There was a massive drop in photoplankton in the oceans. This was a worldwide event, and it produced massive change, certainly not the kind of thing that is happening today, not a uniformitarian principle. And you can go all the way around the Earth today, and you can see this deposit at the Cretaceous boundary. So the assumption that the present is the key to the past isn't always true. And we only looked at one evidence. There are a variety of evidences in all kinds of different forms that changes of a catastrophic nature have occurred. So any particular concept that is based upon uniformitarianism has to be looked at very, very carefully. Uniformitarianism is not true. Let me make a closing point here. And that closing point is that when it appears that there is a conflict between science and the Bible, when we really study it, when we investigate it in great detail, what we find is that either we have bad science, we have bad theology, or both. And the lesson of history has been we've had a lot of both. And we'll try to discuss some of that in the next presentation. Interesting huh? Um, he does not leave us hanging on um, several of these issues. He will come back in the ne the next two sessions, I believe, uh, that deal with um, not only uh, flood, but he also talks about the age of things in his uh, in his session two down the line uh, from today. I want to tell you a little uh, a little story uh, about the. Uh, that, that I was able to experience as a child. Um, when I was probably about 10 to 12 or 13 years old, um, my mother, um, not only at that time, but, but uh, for many years after, was what we call a rock hound. She and uh, another member of the church, a friend of ours, uh, had two boys that were about my age. I had a brother who was about three years older. And uh, our, fa our two families would uh, go camping. We'd go out west and we'd go uh, different places. And uh, wherever there was a, um, a place where she could stop in or they could stop in and trade rocks or buy rocks or whatever, they, they would do that. So this was a, a hobby for them. They made jewelry. They cut stones. They, um, it, it, was, it was quite an experience to, to watch them do this. But one of the, one of the events that we uh, were able to go with them uh, was over. We lived in, in uh, Greenville, Illinois, near St. Louis. We drove over to Terre Haute, Indiana, and uh, they had some strip uh, old strip uh, mines there and the land had been you know uh, torn up and there was no vegetation or anything and uh, we could park our car and walk out there and each of us had a little hammer with us and we would pick up a rock that was that you know that was shaped something like this some of them were flat and some of them were were rounded some of them were more circular some oval um, but they all had the same 
grayish uh, a shale like uh, outer uh, outer appearance. And so what you would do is you would uh, pick that rock up and set it on a larger hard rock on, and on the on its side and tap lightly along the edge. And if it didn't open up, you tapped a little harder until it broke open. And, you know, I was reminded a while ago as I was just jotting a, a note there to talk about this. It, it's kind of like it's it's a grab bag. Um, I don't think they have those much anymore, but they might have them in, in some stores today where you pay a certain amount and you stick your hand in and whatever you pull out, you get to open up and that's that's your prize. I also said, uh, thought that it's a lot like fireworks in an odd way. When they light that firework and it shoots up in the air and you see that little, little light going up, a little trail, you never know what's going to come out until it actually explodes. Some of them are a little bit, some of them are duds, some of them are just, you know, sounds, and some of them just light up the entire sky. Well, inside these rocks, we had fossils. There were fern fossils. Uh, there were um, uh, animal fossils. There were all sorts of uh, fossils, and not every rock had it in there, or if we uh, hit it just wrong, it didn't open just right. Um, some of them were geodes, which had crystals inside, um, and inside uh, with the crystals, I want to say that there were colorful um, mixtures of, of agate or, or other, other rocks and minerals in there. I want to say that some of them even had oil in them when we crack them open. That's my memory, and I'm sticking to it, <laughs> uh, by the way. But it was fascinating because here in the middle of a barren area were these uh, fossils. And when naturally we, we uh, picked up, a, we opened a bunch of them, we pulled a bunch of them and, and took them with us. It, it was uh, We weren't on protected or private land or anything. Uh, it was just open to the public. And so so we were able to take those home and, and continue uh, cracking them open. But I thought, well, this is a really interesting situation. Here I have a rock that has a plant inside of it. Um, and so when uh, Clayton talks about the fossil record, he's talking about the, the fossilization of uh, living things whether they be plants or animals or, or whatever the situation might be. Um, there were some that had small fish in them. Maybe you've seen those, just little bitty fish or even larger fish. Um, and I've, I've still got some of those at the house. I meant to uh, try to find one before I came and then I forgot. I looked around my office and on my shelves and I, I must have put them somewhere else. But I've still got some of those that I had when I was uh, 10 to 15 years old, which means they're long. They're durable, let me put it that way, obviously, because they, adore, they uh, live through centuries of, um, of time. All that to say that um, what Clayton has to offer for us in this particular session is uh, the notion that we have evidence of past life. We have evidence that um, animals uh, different from the animals that we have today lived and thrived and fed on one another. Um, and he talked a little bit about uh, this notion of uniformitarianism, uh, the notion that nothing has interrupted or changed the way things are. You can look at the past and see that the same operations are in effect today. And in some ways that, that is true, but in many ways it's not. When you start looking at the fossil reckon, record and, and other uh, geological evidences, you, you see that catastrophic events like the flood, like um, things mentioned in the Bible, uh, the plague, like, uh, let's see, there was another one he had here, uh, the flood, the plagues, uh,
asteroid collisions. That's not in the Bible, <laughs> but but he did talk about those uh, in the past and and how they have altered our Earth. And uh, so uh, you cannot take um, a, a an approach that the world as it is now is as the world always has been because there have been catastrophic events that have changed things. The very fact that in Michigan and in Illinois, you find fossils of seashells that are not freshwater seashells tells you something. And uh, he, he, did, he did mention this idea that the flood, if it was indeed worldwide, um, would have been able to do something like that. And that's not something that uniformitarianism can explain because they say uh, it has always been the same and we haven't had, if we've had these, then it hasn't, hasn't interrupted. A little Bible to back that up. If you'll go back and look at the Genesis account of the flood, people started living much shorter lifetimes directly after the flood. Uh, Noah lived much Less time, three hundred years less than <clears throat> than uh, I think it was his grandfather Methuselah, Methuselah right? Yeah, so yeah. after that time period, people start living what we would consider more reasonable lifetimes. Abraham lives like I think one hundred and twenty or something. Yeah, and doesn't doesn't it say there is a passage that says the life of man shall be one hundred twenty yeah, years, something like that, um, something like that. And there is an interpretation that that is when that took place. Uh, and who knows why God had uh, the ages of man from Adam up through Noah were like mm, 400 years, 500 years, 600 years, 700 years and, and, and so forth. 969, uh, I believe Methuselah uh, takes the cake there. Um, but <laughs> Probably several uh, cakes with all those candles. <laughs> a lot of cakes and a lot of candles. Uh so we we do have a change that took place there. And and God, that may have been in God's design to do so. It could be that living a long amount of time, you know, one theory would be to populate the earth um, uh, in, in the way uh, that he did early on. Um, so well, what are we saying here? Here are some things that um, he mentions on our, our uh, sheet, our question and answer sheet. Um, what is a fossil? Any evidence of life that has existed in the past, including bones, skin, tracks, waste products. Oh, he mentioned coprolite. I've held coprolite in my hand. Uh, my mom, I think, uh, bar, bought a uh, piece of that. And uh, her friend, uh, Helen, had uh, pieces of coprolite that they had purchased at rock shows. Yes, rock shows. Uh, do exist and they aren't rock concerts by the way those are, those are two different things did dinosaurs live in the past and did humans see them and live around them he alluded to that in in his presentation uh that he uh is is not in, a, in agreement with that or he he doesn't he says that the fossil evidence does not support that um and he cited one that that he uh, in texas that he felt was was more of a hoax than anything else. It says there are, there's no credible evidence that humans and dinosaurs lived together or that early man ever saw a dinosaur. The condition of the earth at the time of the dinosaurs would have been quite hostile to humans uh, living on it, way too hot, high oxygen content, and uh, some other uh, geological or, or physical uh, restrictions that, that would have made it difficult for him. Do you know what he says to the, to the Genesis, like the days of creation? Yes, I do, but that's coming up in future uh, future. Stay seconds. tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. I'm interested. Uh, yes, this uh, his approach, um, and and I've listened to it more than once. Uh, his approach uh, to the age of things is is what he's talking about. There um, is is quite interesting. Um, and if you want to cheat and go forward and listen to that, you can go on his website and go. I think that's where he deals uh, with that. But I would encourage you to. Let's let's take next week and then that uh, the age of things is the one following next week's. And so, as you've seen, he builds on things as he goes. And uh, at the beginning of every session, he says, I hope you listen to the last session before you uh, listen to this one. Um, these are sequential. He is building an argument. And I think it is an amazingly 
well-constructed argument, um, providing us with evidence that God does exist and the God of the Bible is uh, that God um, that we that we know and talk about. Um, what good were dinosaurs? He says they have been called the gardeners of the Jurassic, that age which they existed. They pruned the rapidly growing plants. They broke down plant materials into uh, anaerobic or without oxygen mats that would have eventually produced coal and other resources that man uh, would need. Um, they were part of the Earth's ecosystem uh, that would produce the resources that, that we use today. Um, that some are trying to rid us of using, um, we might say. Um, as far as uh, points, other than that, with his uh, with his talk, um, I don't I don't have any other points uh, concerning that. I do want to I did want to say that um, this idea that of the uniformitarianism that things have always operated the way they have in the past, and we can go back and, and see that uh, in, in our history that is recorded for us. And he would say, obviously, catastrophic events uh, have changed things, have made things a little uh, different for us. And he didn't have time, but he flipped up there that chart of 14 problems, uh, that green one that had 14 uh, items on it. Uh, I think those were problems, issues that uniformitarianism have to deal with. And from his perspective, they don't deal with in a very uh, effective manner. Um, and if you uh, want, you can uh, go back and uh, find this presentation online, freeze it on that one, and then uh, take a screenshot or something and go check out some of those uh, yourself. But I just wanted to highlight that because sometimes he'll put something up real quick and he'll allude to, you know, something right at the top of it, but then not the rest. Uh, I thought that was, you know, if if those in, are indeed 14 uh, different uh, problems that uniformitarianism has and they can't or won't or don't answer, then um, we've got a problem with uniformitarianism. Um, evolutionists. those uh, those Darwinians, those uh, naturalists who say that all life has emerged from a single cell have similar problems. Um, I think that was one of the, the question questions over here. Do fossils show that all life evolved from a single cell organism? And he says, no, exclamation point. This is actually unprovable because every step would have to be documented for literally billions of changes. And that's what evolution is, changes. The lack of truly transitional fossils from one kind to the next, which their theory proposes, they don't have. And for it's always it's always amazed me that scientists who are so are such sticklers for the scientific method and for evidence and for proof of things when it comes to evolution they are willing to look the other direction or just say well we know it happened this way because we have this step over here and we have this step over here and they say this one led to this when they don't have any kind of evidence for that and in the realm of evolution they're able to um, to say that that's a, that's a that's a piece of gap evidence, uh, and and it's it's so uh, such opposite of the way they operate in almost every other realm of science. It's kind of interesting little tidbit here about transitional animals and the missing link. Kind of was how we've colloquially referred to the thing uh, back when Darwin was writing the theory of evolution, the book. <clears throat> he said um, that. Given enough time, we would be able to find thousands of examples of transitional animals. It's been 150 years. We haven't found a single one. Yeah, that's that's telling in and of itself. You know, yeah, different different train for a different day. I guess. And, yeah, and people people say, well, we just we're not looking in the right places. They're there. We just haven't found them. Find well, one. Well, that's not proof. That's not evidence. Yeah. 
Um, and the, the good thing that I like about this, this series of lessons um, by Clayton is that, that he is going step by step. He is building, building a, a, a to me, uh, of course, I agree with him on some other areas as well, but a very convincing um, argument, large argument for the fact that God does exist and that he is the God of the Bible and that science and the Bible support one another um, as they rightfully should and rightfully have to. If they don't, as he said, it's either bad theology or bad science, uh, one of the two. And uh, I just gave you an example of what I think I would point to as bad science. Um, I did want to point out uh, a couple of things um, in in this series and in the time we have together. Um, there have been issues that come up that we talk about. And then I share with you something that I found uh, that's related. Um, I would have to say that. Um, very little of what I'm going to share with you right now is related to uh, fossils. Um, however, there are some basic fundamental things that the Bible teaches, that the Bible lays out for us as fact that we as human beings are ignoring. Um, these are these are four or five articles. I'm not going to read the articles to you. I might read you a, a, a sentence or two from each. We have about 10 minutes left. But these are things that. Um, we as Christians are running up against and are going to have to deal with. Um, and, and some of them are really discouraging uh, and distressing. Um, all of these were within the last week, um, January 14th, at an elementary school in Cupertino, California. And I understand that this happened last year and not recently, um, but it will, if it didn't happen in Cupertino uh, this year, it happened somewhere else. Uh, this year, because this is part of what is is coming at us. A teacher of third graders instructed them to deconstruct their racial and sexual identities, <coughs> then create rankings based on their power and their privilege. The project was met with backlash uh, from parents, uh, as <laughs> as you might expect. Um, and it was it was an, an attempt to, um, I think, to get them to look at conditions and things that we have in society um, in a way that they hadn't previously done. And there is a, a movement uh, afoot to do that. And I'm not against uh, looking at things in a way that I haven't looked at them before. But I will measure them against what I what I find to be true and, and real in my life and in my situation and my existence. Second one, um, same day, um, a mother of a four year old child who refuses to disclose to disclose whether the child is a biological boy or girl and claims she let the child decide their own gender has stated that she's been accused by some of child abuse. She says, uh, I do uh, gender creative parenting for two main reasons. First, I believe gender is up to an individual to determine and does not need to be assigned at birth. I think that assignment has already been made uh, without her help. I know a lot of people who are intersex, transgender or non-binary. I didn't want to make an assumption about what my child's gender and identity interests would be. Gender identity and interest would be, I wanted to let my kid tell me who they are instead of the other way around. Secondly, I do gender creative parenting because I don't want to perpetuate sexist stereotypes and oppression that children are inundated with from birth. Third one, uh, Virginia's new uh, transgender rules for public schools. Um, Use preferred pronouns and don't question bathroom choices. Virginia's Department of, this is not California, Virginia. Virginia's Department of Education was required by law to create model policies for school boards regarding treatment of transgender students no later than December 31st, just passing 2020. Draft model policies are now public and require schools to use uh, students' preferred pronouns 
regardless of whether or not that was their what's on their birth certificate and the genders they were uh, at birth says the document states that faculty and students are to use students preferred pronouns or face disciplinary action as this is considered a form of harassment i don't know if in this case but in others you cannot simply refer to them as their name every time you refer to them you cannot avoid using their preferred pronouns now we have uh, going on in our country right now um, what we call first amendment violations people ought to be able to speak their minds and their opinions and as long as uh, no um, the old example you can't yell fire in a crowded theater uh, there's even argument about that uh, today but if if my response and we we had the situation with the uh january 6th situation in in washington with president trump uh supposedly um instigating uh, a riot uh, with his words that you cannot say things that will um, cause damage uh, of that sort makes total sense i mean we're a free society but at the same time when my freedoms impinge upon others and affect them negatively affect them um, in serious ways then my my freedom of speech is uh, is limited to a certain degree what they're saying here is my right to make remain silent is offensive so not my speech is what is is offensive the fact that i won't speak is offensive and to me i mean it it's it's a sign of where things are going teachers across the nation are being required to say to this child they have to use their preferred pronouns whether it's the opposite of what their biological state is or whether they've chosen something in between the there uh, they've got a whole list of potential um, pronouns that can be used schools are also not allowed to question uh, students entering the bathroom or locker rooms that do not comport with their outward appearance or sex it's like all the way to high school look with that this is, this is virginia school board department of education and so it's it's all k-12 further school staff are instructed to help students come to terms with their gender identity without involving or informing their parents or guardians it's mind-numbing January 15th on Thursday, staff attorney who works for the American Civil, Liber Civil Liberties Union in New York and identifies as transgender issued a Twitter thread in which the argument was made that people who believe that men are naturally better athletes than women and that sex categories are binary and fixed get those ideas from misogyny and white supremacy. Um, we have individuals who have are claiming transgender we have two boys was it in connecticut that bro broke all sorts of girls track records and took away state uh, trophies because they claimed that they were female and uh yet they say you know they're saying that males are not athletically superior to females I say let them suit up and play on uh, the NFL any Sunday they want and uh, the best of them there there is a difference and 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 I, we are so um blinded by our um ideology I keep saying surely at some point this will get to the Supreme Court but it may not and even if it does i'm not so sure that um sound minds will prevail the last one you know, we got a couple of minutes new administration is reportedly pairing a widespread rollback of policies um, fostered by the previous administration 
reproductive rights advocates uh, expect new administration to quickly overturn uh, the previous rules like banning federal funds for foreign and international health organizations that promote and provide abortion. Um, some also report that, pro, uh, that, that our new president has promised to codify abortion into federal law in an effort to prevent any potential Supreme Court overturn of Roe v. Uh, Roe v. Wade and combat the increasing number of state policies that seek to protect the life of the unborn. We've got a bunch of issues going on. We're moving into a, a time period where some of our dearest held uh, beliefs are going to be called into question. And so we're going to have to be strong. That's all the news for today and for this week that I have to share. We will again uh, pick up next week with the uh, section entitled The Flood of Noah, Fact and Myth. And that should be intriguing. Thank you all. Hang in there. See you guys Sunday. Bye-bye.